Almighty God, we thank you that we always have your scripture available to us. We thank you that this morning, as we gather together, or that any who may be participating in this service at a later time, by means of recording, wherever they're at, whatever time it is, they join with us now in the Spirit to open to what you have to say to us in this message through these scriptures today. And Lord, we know that this message is one that it may indeed confound us. It may indeed confront us. When your servant Paul speaks and says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, it awakens us to the reality that there are things in it that might cause someone to be confronted, contradicted, or to feel ashamed. But Lord, you did not desire to make us ashamed, but to set us free from guilt and shame, to set us straight and put us on the path of righteousness. Your word is a cleansing wash to us today, Lord God. Your spirit is an embracing hug. And your purpose is our desire and goal. So by your word and through this teaching, may your purposes be fulfilled in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this third message in this extended series, I want to look with you at the, uh, the subsequent amount of scripture in the first and into the early part of the second chapter of Romans. And indeed, I've chosen the title Unashamed because it begins with one of the most famous passages out of Romans, which is a book that has so many famous passages, and is a familiar Scripture to so many of us. Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In this section, Romans 1.16 through 2.16, we really look closely at two ideas that are going to reverberate and echo throughout the chapters of this grand letter that Paul wrote to the early Christian believers in the city of Rome in the mid-50s A.D. And these ideas are guilt and grace. In other words, you may remember me saying this earlier in the series, there is good news and bad news. The bad news is we are guilty. I'm guilty of sin. You're guilty of sin. All have sinned. And that sin has a consequence that separates us from God, that rips us away from his heart. Hey, it's Valentine's Day. You're probably aware of that, at least when I'm preaching this message. For us here, happy Valentine's Day. You might think that's a silly thing to say, but believe me, God is love. And a holiday that celebrates love is a holiday that celebrates God. And Valentine, for whom the holiday is named, is a man who loved the Lord and shared that love with others. And that's why we celebrate this day. So just shout over to the person six feet away from you. Happy Valentine's Day. Well, why am I talking about Valentine's in this point in the message? Because... When we talk about sin and the consequence of sin separating us from God, what we are talking about is a broken heart. Our sin has broken the heart of God in the sense that he mourns for the effect on us. It hasn't broken God because God can't be broken. 
So it has saddened and grieved and offended him. But the other heart that is broken is a heart that can be broken. It's yours and mine. Our sin has broken our hearts and the hearts of others around us. And that brokenness is described most fully as death. Not just a broken heart, but a heart attack. Sin begets death. Separation from God is separation from his love, which means separation from his life, and there is no other life but the life of the Lord. So that's the bad news. But this Valentine's Day, I want to say your broken heart can receive from the healing heart of God's wholeness of his love and life today. The good news is God's grace. That by faith in God's grace, you and I can be made whole. And not just a wholeness that fills the holes in our heart, but a wholeness that fills the holes in the ground that are graves, that resurrects life, that brings forth life through the love of God. And that is not something that you and I can possibly earn by our effort to be right. It can only come by our faith in the righteousness of God. But it's a complicated message because does that mean then that there's nothing for us to do? There is something for us to do. There is a response that we are called to make and in order to rightly understand the bad news and the good news, to rightly receive the gospel, Paul is showing these early believers that his understanding of the gospel involves, first of all, a close look at guilt and grace. Now you begin to see why Paul might start to talk about being unashamed or ashamed. Because when you start to talk about guilt, what response rises up in people? Shame. And you know how people typically respond to shame? Well, in negative ways. Anger, to push away whatever is presenting them with the possibility that there's something to be ashamed of. Or, instead of pushing away, turning away, running away, and hiding like that first man and woman that we know as Adam and Eve in the garden, who the moment that they realized that they had broken their bond with God, they realized they had become fully uncovered. They had stepped out from under his grace. They were naked and ashamed, and they ran away. So when we start to talk about guilt, we start to talk about issues that might leave people feeling ashamed or angry, resistant or dismissive. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed because this good news is of God and it's the truth that brings life. Now, I mentioned that throughout this series, I'm going to be bringing us back each time or at least in many of the messages to some overarching ideas that can kind of help weave together the progress that we are going to be making through this long book because there really are a lot of deep ideas here and I'm hoping that I can help you and I to move through them in a way that that allows us to connect the dots a little bit more in the spirit and, and see the, the through line of ideas. And in order to do that, it's useful to consider the broader context and also the broader themes and structures that are present in this scripture. So as I mentioned last week, there's really three primary areas that Paul um, sort of loads into the letter as his particular purposes 
in writing to these people in this church that he has not yet visited. Remember that at this time that he's writing the letter, he hasn't yet been to Rome. And so he is introducing himself to these people, these early believers in Rome, both Jewish believers who are believers in Jesus Christ, but they are ethnically Jewish, they observe the Jewish law, they eat in a, a kosher manner, they go to temple, they continue to be Jewish and to worship the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, but there are also in Rome Gentile believers, non-Jewish, not born ethnically Jewish, and not those who observe all the detail of the Jewish law, but who are followers of Jesus Christ. And these two groups of people who have, as I mentioned last week, and you can go back into uh, the prior sermons if you missed that and listen to it to again or hear it for the first time, I encourage you to do that. You'll hear a little bit about the history about how there was a, 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 a period of perhaps a decade when Jewish people had been exiled from Rome. Now they've come back in and they're trying to deal with how do these two ethnic groups come together as one body in Christ. And so Paul is writing to them so that they can understand God's call on them and on all who would respond to his call, and also that they would know Paul's personal mission, his evangelical desire. He wants to go throughout the uh, known world at that time sharing the gospel, and he's actually going to try and enlist their support as a missionary. I'm encouraged to know that it's not just a modern thing for a missionary to write to a church and say, I want to introduce myself to you. I want to let you know what I understand the message and mission of God to be for me. I want to build relationship with you because I need your support. And Paul is doing that. But he also knows that they have needs. In fact, in that first section of Romans uh, that was part of our reading last week, the first 15 verses, Paul mentions to them that He's been wanting to come and visit them for a long time. He wants to impart something useful to them. He, he's basically saying, God has given a, me a call, and part of that call is to connect with you. I've got things to offer you of the Lord that I think you'll find valuable. But in a very humble way, people often forget that Paul is humble because he's so authoritative and because he's so bold. But that's really the spirit of the Lord in him. But that spirit of the Lord is a humble spirit, and Paul was a humble man. And Paul also says, you have things to give to me. Now, the, the, the jaded person might say, well, yeah, what he means is you can, you can help fund my missions. But that's not cynical. That's true. And that's actually a blessing to be able to give to how the Lord enables you to help support others in that mission is a blessing. But he also recognizes you have spiritual gifts to share with me. You have relational support to grant to me. So it's mutual. Paul recognizes that he has a mission to serve them and that he has a desire to be served by them or to benefit from their wisdom and knowledge. And he even describes how the whole world has heard about these Roman believers being very faithful. Now, why is that important? It's important that we recognize that Paul starts off by saying, I've heard all about your reputation, even though I haven't met you yet. I know that you are strong and firm and good believers. That's important because we're about to get into territory where Paul is going to start pointing fingers. It kind of looks like it, at least. He's going, to, he's going to start talking about the ways in which people fall short. And he's going to use that term, you. You have done this, and you cannot judge. And Why do you who say you shouldn't steal, why do you stay, steal? 
When he's talking that way, it's important that you and I recognize he's not literally trying to point fingers at the people in Rome that he's writing to. He's never met most of them. But he's speaking in a, in a philosophical, rhetorical way. He's talking about you in the generic sense of you people, any people, all people. In fact, one of the great aspects of the letter to the Romans is how it equalizes people. It's not so much to say that the letter actually equalizes people, but rather that the letter recognizes that people are equal. That everybody has sinned. Now, that equality, it, it starts out sounding good, right? That's the good news. All people are made equal. The bad news is all are equally guilty of sin. But the good news is also equal. All can receive the life of God, not just Jews. Not just the Jewish people who have received the word of God, but all people. But also, there is an order to the way God has done things. And so, the originality of the Jewish faith, which has received the word and the witness of the law of God, is something that God has established so that all people can understand the good news and the righteousness of God. Paul also recognizes that in Rome, there are some unique experiences that that city has had at that time that he wants to tap into. It's a, it's a timely opportunity for him to connect with them based on the experience that they've had being in this very cosmopolitan, metropolitan, capital city of the ancient world and also their experience with how to collaborate and integrate Gentile and Jewish believers. Now, before you start to think, well, this is a history lesson. That's time for me to tune out and go to sleep. Don't you know that you and I live in a cosmopolitan, metropolitan city? Here, if you're in L.A., you're in a city where ethnicities mix. You're in a church where ethnicities mix. And there can be joy in that experience of commonality across different backgrounds, but there can also be challenge and strife. So Rome's experience is not so different from L.A.'s experience. And for believers today, who also, not only do we as people who represent in the body of Christ every tribe and tongue want to find unity together, but we also as contemporary Christians should hear from Paul in the book of Romans the great bonds that connect us with the Jewish people. One of the great travesties of the Christian era in the last 2,000 years is that there has been such a divide between Jewish and Christian people. And it's not biblical. And in fact, though some would suggest that the book of Romans furthers that divide, I want to suggest to you that a right reading of it actually bridges that divide. And it's part of Rome's experience that is valuable for you and I today. Of course, Rome also was influential and affluential. In other words, a city that the whole world looked to and a city that had a lot of resource that could help support the mission of God. Now, I want to take us into new territory and talk about some of the major themes that we will see in the book of Romans. And I'm going to present a lot of material to, to you today, but recognize we're going to be working through this material over the coming months. So it's not as though you've got to get all of this down right now, but I want to start to kind of wash us in the wisdom of the book of Romans so that as we come back to these themes over and over and we build upon them, they start to get integrated into our thinking, our understanding about this incredible message 
Because the more that you, as I mentioned before in previous message in this series, the more you invest yourself in the study of this word, the more the life of this word gets invested in you. And that pays dividends. It's like seed sown into good ground and well-tended and well-watered. It grows and it becomes fruitful. So these themes in the book of Romans, they're fruitful territory for us to be looking at and digging into. And they recur often in a kind of paired way, a binary sort of way. I never thought of it this way before, but maybe there's a kind of parallel to uh, programming language here. It's the digital epistle because Paul utilizes this kind of binary combination of ideas over and over. And to some degree, it's reflective of an ancient rhetorical style that balances two opposing ideas or two ideas that can be understood better or richer or in a more focused way by putting them on this kind of seesaw, by putting them on the scales and comparing them together. And so Paul comes back to these things over and over and over again, but he does so in a way that sometimes you and I, I mean, I will confess this, sometimes when I read through Romans, I, especially if I read uh, it all together, I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, I read the entire book out loud to myself left me in tears and in praise and on my knees and wanting to go out and shake people on the street and just say, the good news of God is here. It's a very invigorating, enthralling read. I encourage you, if you haven't done it yet, sit down and read through the whole book of Romans, 16 chapters in, in, a, in an hour or two uh, in, your, in your home and, and be blessed by it. But when you do, don't rush through it because you might get to the idea that some of it is just repetitive. Be careful. Paul is a very brilliant mind. He's working, collaborating with a kind of editorial board of his team also in writing this. When we get to the end of this book, we're going to find that there's people who kind of chime in in the latter chapters and say, hey, we were here too. We were part of drafting this too. But of course, the one who's really moving the pen on the papyrus is the spirit of the Lord. And so you have these great minds animated and inspired by the great mind, the Holy Spirit, and they are not just repeating things. There is a flow and there is a grow. They're building on these ideas. Every time they're reiterated, there's something that is being um, elaborated and more deeply understood in that. So a lot of the dichotomies that he will present, dichotomy simply meaning these two ideas that are put into opposition, well, when we hear opposition, we think one versus another, right? It's like uh, boxers in the ring. The bell rings and they come out from their corners and go at it, right? Good versus bad, once again. Well, a lot of these dichotomies are precisely that. Paul is taking a bad idea and opposing it with a good idea. For instance, we've already seen, you could probably quote to me out of the book of Romans, places where Paul puts into juxtaposition unbelief, which is bad, and when we say belief, I'm talking specifically about belief in God, in, in the fact that God exists, in the goodness of God, in his word and its reliability. Understood? Wave at me if you're... I'm, I'm so unaccustomed to... Yeah, you can wave. I saw people start to... Can I respond? You can. And it's good for me to know. I, I got used to just talking to myself in here, although I know that's never been true. You can wave at me too. I can't see you, but I'm, I'm saluting you out there in internet land. So when we're talking about belief, we're talking about belief in God. Unbelief in God is bad, 
belief in God is good, right? Doubt of God's word is bad. Faith in God's word is good. Disobedience to God, bad. Humility to God, submission to God, good. Now here you start to see how Paul can kind of braid these ideas together, right? So sometimes in the dichotomies, we can even see that there's, there's sort of these uh, paired ideas. Pride goes before a fall. Pride and disobedience, sin and death are connected and they're on the bad side of the equation. Humility and submission, obedience and life are paired together, and they're on the good side of the equation. Secular idolatry, in other words, the pagan peoples of the Roman world who were engaged in religion, but their religion was unrighteous. It was dedicated to other gods. That's bad. Sacred spirituality. The Jewish and Christian believers who were focused on Jesus Christ and the word of God and were filled with the spirit, that's a good spirituality. But... This kind of brings me to another point, which is Paul gets into some rather nuanced areas. So this is really important. I really want you to get this. Not every time that Paul is comparing something in Romans is he comparing bad and good. Sometimes he's comparing two things that are both good or two things that are both bad. And the reason he does that is usually specific to the point he is making. But because we got used to him comparing bad and good, we might make the mistake of thinking, oh, he's putting these two things into opposition, so they must be one good and one bad. I'll choose this one is the good and this one is the bad. But actually, they're both bad or they're both good. Or maybe they're both things that can be good in some ways and bad in others, right? So they're different, and he's comparing those differences. For example... Paul compares Jewish and Gentile. But you're completely misunderstanding the message of Romans if you think that one of those is good and one of those is bad. They are both good because look what we see in both of them. They believe, right? And belief was good. So it's two different kinds of belief. Or actually what Paul is really going to show us is it's one belief. There is one faith. But there's different kinds of people. So there's diversity and unity. And they're both good. So there are things that also can both be bad. For instance, both Gentile believers... If I were to ask you, which one of these believers sins? They both do. All have sinned, right? Which one believes in Jesus? They both do. We're talking about Jewish believers, in other words, Messianic Christians, people who believe in Jesus Christ but are ethnically Jewish and continue to observe the classic Jewish faith. General revelation and special revelation comes into special focus in the first chapter of Romans. What do we mean by this? General revelation is everything around you. General meaning universal. It is the revelation of God, how God reveals himself through creation. You go and you look at the stars at night and the Milky Way splayed across the sky and that brilliant ribbon of white and it is a revelation that there is a God. You stand upon the shore of an ocean. You look out across the beauty of an island. You see the extraordinary expanse of the canyon. You see the trees growing on the hills, the flowers arrayed 
and adorned in greater finery than even Solomon in all of his glory, and it is a revelation of God. You have an inner witness, a conscience. If you are cruel to somebody, you feel ashamed inside. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, somewhere there's a voice in your head saying, that's not right. And that is the revelation of the wisdom of God that is implanted in your heart. But there's also special revelation, which means basically specific, objective, and given to us in the word of God. The scriptures are the most particular um, demonstration of special revelation, I suppose, other than Jesus Christ himself. Remember in John chapter 1 when we were told no one has actually seen God at any time except Jesus came and made him visible to us because he was incarnated in the flesh. So there's general revelation and special revelation and they are, they are both useful, but they are unique. And so we've got to be careful that we understand that there are times when Paul is comparing good and bad. There's times when it's good, good, or bad, bad. And so what we need to do is look at the context in which he is comparing them and also how he is comparing them and then prayerfully consider what does that tell us about why he is comparing them and what he is actually saying. So now let me present a couple of more of these major themes and think about them in these terms. Humanity debased in wickedness Humanity transformed in Christ. That's very clearly a good-bad comparison, right? It's bad when human beings go deeper and deeper into wickedness, farther and farther away from God. It's good when human beings who were far from God are brought close to him, who were debased in sin are raised up in righteousness and made whole by the sacrifice of Christ and changed into a new kind of humanity. So, bad, good. Now, law and grace. I want to speak carefully about this because it's a complicated topic. And this is part of the reason why Paul's letter to the Romans ends up being 16 chapters long. Even though he wasn't writing in chapters, that's a division that came later. But in other words, it's his longest letter that we have. It's the longest letter in the New Testament, and there's a reason. It takes time for Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to wisely lay out all of the detail of what he's talking about. And that's why you and I are taking time with this. That's why we're going to spend weeks and months studying this. Because it takes time to really come to a deep and refined understanding of it, but it's so valuable that we would. Because it's so powerful when we do. Now, law and grace have often been understood as being set into opposition in the book of Romans and other writings of Paul, where Paul is saying the law is bad and grace is good, but that is not what he is saying. He is saying the law is good and grace is good, but there are ways in which the law can be misapplied, misunderstood, or badly ignored, and there are ways in which grace can be misapplied, misunderstood, or badly ignored. And so, really, you can't understand grace without the law. And the law can't help without grace. They need each other. Just like you and I need each other. Now, somebody might be concerned that I, that means somehow that I am diminishing grace. Someone else might be concerned that that means I'm diminishing law. But what I think Romans is trying to tell us is that, in fact, they are one and they are Christ. 
in Christ, justice and grace, mercy have met, have kissed, have embraced. But I also want to be very clear that there are times when this binary dichotomy that Paul presents is very black and white. Sin is bad and there's nothing good in it. Righteousness is good and there's nothing bad in it. That's what makes righteousness righteousness. Righteousness is not just of God. Righteousness is God. That's why you and I can't be righteous on our own. Because how could we be God? But you, are you God of your life? Who, who tells you how to live? To whom do you belong? Who decides what happens with and in and through your body? Who decides what thoughts to think and what words to say? Who is your master? That is your God. And is your God a God of sin or a God of righteousness? If you and I are gods of our own lives and all are sinners and we are sinners, then a God of sin is ruling our life, even though it's we ourselves who are ruling it. But in fact, remember how we looked at the enslavement of Paul last week? He said, Paulus Dulus, a slave of Jesus Christ. What Romans really shows us is we, none of us, though we may think we are rulers of our lives, we are in fact slaves to sin. But the grace of God which will enslave us to his righteousness, will free us as his heirs. So these are deep ideas, and they will, they will require us thinking about them over and over again. But in today's section, we're going to start to grapple with them in a very immediate and broad way. There's four sections of this sequence of verses from 116 to 216 that I think you can relatively logically see. And they move through some of these ideas that we've been talking about. Unashamed, unaware, unexcused, and unafraid. Now on their own, they may sound pithy, I hope they do, but they may not be very illuminating. So let me start to align them for you with the passages that we're looking at. You can see there the scripture sequences that we'll be looking at more closely in the coming minutes. When I say unashamed, I'm talking about Paul's description of what we feel, how we live, our experience and our assurance when we are placing our faith in God's good graces. In other words, that's kind of another way of saying, when you and I believe that God is good and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, when we recognize that we have not been good, but that his goodness is available to us by faith, if we put our faith in his goodness and in his promise of grace, then we can actually stand unashamed. Not because we've never done anything wrong, not even because I never do anything wrong now, right? I've been a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, dedicated to Jesus Christ for, I don't know how many years now, but it's a long time, 36 years, I guess, of, of really diligently being dedicated. And I... You know, I struggle with sin. I fail and falter. And yet, I can say I am unashamed, not because the sin doesn't matter, but because it has been answered. That debt has been paid. But as I mentioned, there's a response 
required of anyone who wants to live unashamed. Do you want to live unashamed? Do you want to be freed from the shackle of shame? That voice that constantly tears you down within, that inner critic that I tell you is an outer demon that is trying to ensnare you in the lie and the hopelessness of the enemy, then you must put your faith in God's grace and doing so involves an act of repentance. It involves being unafraid to come to God and say, I'm a sinner. I need you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, coming before the presence of God is a scary thought. But you can never stand unashamed with God unless you've been able to come and stand before him unafraid. And yet none of us could come to him unafraid. But this kind of unafraid actually involves another kind of fear. Because the only way that you and I can come boldly before the throne of God is for us to recognize that it is a throne of grace, as the book of Hebrews says. And therefore, what we come with is a fear of God that is unashamed. It is a reverence for the reality of God, a recognition of the righteousness of God, and a repentance for our unrighteousness. Now, this is not necessary in order to initiate God's grace. God's grace already came to us through Christ. It is necessary in order to receive it and believe it. But because it's a fearful thing, and because people don't like to be ashamed, there are other ways that people respond to the reality that all have sinned and are divided from God. And one is to be blissfully unaware. Have you ever heard the phrase, I'm sure you have, ignorance is bliss? Don't believe it. It's a bliss that is not blessed. If you are unaware that you are at odds with God, it does not mean that you have no guilt. And so Paul is going to address that reality right up front and say the whole world that has gone away from God and given itself over to other gods and given itself over to other ways of living is in fact guilty. And you know what the proof of it is? The, the crime is sin. What is the penalty? You tell me, what's the penalty for sin? Death. Death. Now who doesn't die? So you can't say that you're unaware that there is guilt because you are aware, aren't you, that you too will die. And everyone you know, I'm going to die, you're going to die. And that is why. We don't even think about it. Why does everybody die? It's so interesting that it's such a given, but it's because we are so given over to it. But in fact, it is the result of sin. So you can say, well, I never knew the law, and I never heard it, and I never believed it. Guess what? You will still die. Ignorance of the law is not a defense. So the guilt of the unrighteous is revealed so that they could be aware, so that they could know and repent and receive and believe. But what about people who say, I'm very well aware of the wrongness of sin, and I'm very well aware of the righteousness of God, and I'm very well situated, standing unashamed and unafraid because I am a believer. I'm a Jew or a Christian. I know the scripture. I know the, and I live according to it, and I live righteously. Beware, dear one, 
that your righteousness is God's and not your own. So Paul is going to turn the tables and say, after having accused the people of the world of being sinful, he's going to turn to believers and say, but what about you? You have no excuse for your sin. You who already know the law and know the ways of God, why do you keep doing what is wrong? And so there is a guilt of the self-righteous. So he starts by talking about how the word of God is proclaimed to everyone. And the point of the word is that people should be able to be alive, in, or people should rejoice that they can be alive in Christ. And Paul's not ashamed to declare that. It's the power of God for salvation. But he's going to reveal the wrath of God against the worldly sinner that's unaware of God, as well as the wrath of God against the sanctimonious, self-righteous sinner who's all caught up in their religious achievement and has no real receptivity to the work and the spirit of the Lord. So that ultimately, we would recognize whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we're a slave or a free person, whether we're the boss or the employee, male, female, old or young, everyone can have the love of God alive in them, but everyone is called to repent in order to receive. All right, let's take a look at this. So Paul's first statement in this section is about being unashamed, but I want to back up just a couple of verses to give the context for it. Paul says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. In other words, when he's saying this, this is another way of translating Jewish and Gentile. Uh, when he says Greek and non-Greek, he's not just speaking specifically about the, uh, the, the, the Greek, uh, the people of the Greek nation. He's talking about this binary understanding of humanity, Jewish and Gentile. And he says, I, I'm, I'm obligated to both, both to the wise and the foolish. Now, remember, he's writing to people that are both Jewish and Gentile. And I suppose you could say he's writing to people that are both wise and foolish. But in fact, he's already stated that his general understanding of the believers of the Roman churches is that they are wise people. In other words, they are looking to and following the wisdom of the Lord in general. So what is he talking about here? When he says obligated, it can actually be translated literally as in debt. I have a debt to pay to Jewish and Gentile people, to people who are wise and know something of the, spe uh, the specific special revelation of God, to people who are fools and are given over to all kinds of pagan foolishness. I'm indebted to them. Why? Because God's given him a call. God has assigned him a mission. Imagine if I gave you $10. And I, I, you know, I, I said uh, um, to uh, Pastor Vanita, Pastor Vanita, I want you to give this $10 to Sister Eden. Well, now, Pastor Vanita has a debt to pay to Sister Eden and to me, right? Which is, she's received something from me, and she has to give it to Sister Eden. And so there is this sense of, I have to carry this over to you because I owe it to God to give it to you. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, God has given me this message, and now I have a debt to give it to you. And I want to make sure I don't hold on to it. I want to get it into your hands. Because it isn't mine. It belongs to him. But so do I. I'm a slave to him. And so I'm eager to give this to you. And I owe it to everyone. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Whether you know anything about the Bible or nothing about the Bible. Whether you like God or hate God. God has said to me, give it to them. All of them. Any of them. As many as will receive. And that's what you and I are called into. 
You and I actually have received that. If you're hearing this message today, you better recognize this. You are getting a debt from God to give away to others. You're getting a gift from God to give away to others. But you and I should have that same sense that Paul has. I must, by all means, make sure that my life is about transmitting this message. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel, says Paul, to you who are in Rome. And I'm not ashamed to do it. I know there's going to be people that don't like it. I know there's going to be people offended by it. I know there's going to be people that reject it and me. And that kind of rejection that Paul is talking about is not just people laughing at him. He had that happen on the Acropolis in Greece in Athens. But people throwing stones at him to kill him. People beating him and imprisoning him. But he's not afraid. And he's not ashamed. Because he's aware of the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But there is a real message to be believed in. It's not whatever you want. There's not a million ways to God. He says, to everyone who believes, the message that came first to the Jew and then to the world. First through the Christ and then to the nations. It's not whatever you want. It's not pick and choose time. It's not cafeteria Christianity. There's one way. There's one truth. There's one life. And that has come to the world through God's covenant people, the Jews. But it has come through them for all. And it's the righteousness of God. And the only way it has ever come and the only way it has ever been received has always been faith. Faith from beginning to end, from the garden to the grave, to, from, the, from the tomb to the resurrection, always by faith. Here, you may have a translation that says faith from first to last, or from, by faith to faith, or faith from faith. It's literally out of faith into faith. It came to us out of God. It leads us into God. And here Paul quotes the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. But there's, you know, usually what we hear in that is, that means righteous people will live according to faith. And it, and it does mean that. But another way that you can read it is, faith will make people righteous. And that righteousness is life. In other words, faith, will make you alive. Without faith, you're dead. But these ideas are inseparable. Righteousness will make you alive. But without righteousness, you are dead. So if you say, I don't believe that, and you turn away, you're still going to die. If you say, I believe that and I'm going to make myself righteous according to all the ways that are described, you're not doing it by faith and you're still dead. So what will you do? You must receive by faith. Now, Paul's going to really turn the screws here because he's going to talk about how this is beyond just the impact of individuals. All of society has been shaped by these realities. The wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see that? Their wickedness is about trying to turn off the evidence of their shame, 
trying to turn away from God. And so they do turn away from God. Even though all of creation makes God's invisible qualities visible. Even though our inner conscience makes us aware that God is there and righteous. But the way of the world is to ignore that. And to say, there is no God there. Or that's not my God. And I'm not going to worship him. And I'm not going to give thanks to him. But there's a result that comes from that. See, you know, God gives us the freedom of making a choice. He does not enable us to decide what the choice does. And he has informed us what the choice does. What he has said is, if you turn away from me, you will fall into delusion, deception, disease, and death. And that's what has happened. But all the while, the people who are going down that path, they're not saying we're going the wrong way. They're saying this is the right way. And so their thinking grows futile. They actually lose the capacity to comprehend. And their hearts grow darkened. They lose the capacity to be convicted about it. So they're unaware that they don't know how wrong their life is. How bad are the results and how broad are the implications. Because like a pebble in the pond, the ripples go out. And they, they aggregate and congregate until the entire society claims to be wise, but is full of fools. Hello. <laughs> right? You recognize that description of society? They exchange this glorious opportunity to be in relationship with the immortal God to instead be ensnared with mortal idols. Now, in the ancient world, it was pagan idolatry. In the modern world, it's everything that we adore and give ourselves over to. Whether it's, uh, it's not that, I mean, when you think about the pagan idols, what did they look like? They looked like animals, right? Paul talks about that. Birds and, 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 and cats and dogs and bulls. Is that stuff bad? God made birds and cats and dogs and bulls. It's good, but it's not God. It's made by God, but it's not God. So if you and I are given over to things about the beauty of human bodies or the power of political action or the joy of resource and money, it doesn't mean that stuff is all bad and that there's nothing good in it, but it's not God. But they are gods. Power, sex, influence, fame, relationship, opinion. And if those are your idols, you're enslaved to them and you're unaware And out of that comes a very particular demonstration of a society in absolute idolatry. And it is sexual sin. Paul focuses here on sexual impurity, the degrading of people's bodies with one another. And he moves it into the arena, which is very uncomfortable in our modern society because we have such a distinctly different idea about sexuality and about the notion of sexual orientation and so forth. But Paul talks about homosexuality as a demonstration of a society absolutely blinded to truth and given over to the propagation of lie. And it's not just an example sin. I, I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that Paul was thinking, you know, what kind of sin here? I mean, I could talk about people being greedy, or I could talk about no care for the poor, or I could talk about gays, homosexuals. Let's, that's a good one. Let's go with that. I don't believe the context indicates that. 
he's making a very systematic argument in Romans. And he's talking about the world having fallen away from God and gone over into darkened worship of other things. And there's a particular signal evidence of it. And it has to do with sexual perversion, the degradation of the marital union, and the celebration of homosexuality, of the same-sex relations. Now, it's a very sensitive topic, not least of which because many of us have people who are homosexual and who we love. And I want to say, God loves them too, of course. However, I also want to say our contemporary idea about sexual orientation is exactly that. It's an idea. It's not historically rich. It's not long-lived. People say, oh, there's always been homosexuals. There is no question that there has always been in humanity evidence of, and generally on, on prevalent scale, uh, evidence of romantic and sexual liaison between people of the same sex. Yes. In fact, the Bible talks about that. There's no doubt about it. But that's not the same thing as sexual orientation, which is a modern concept. And I haven't the time in today's conversation to go into all the depth about it that I would like to. Here's what I want to say about this. Paul's point is, people who are given over to something other than God's purpose become themselves given over to a different purpose than that of God. And God's purpose for people was be fruitful and multiply. Now, friend, I want you to hear this from me because I say this with no crudity intended and no cruelty intended. But it is obvious from that statement out of Genesis that among the other kinds of fruitfulness that are implied, the most immediate application of it is come into a sexual union together, man and woman, and create children. And it is something that homosexuals cannot do. I'm not trying to be cruel in saying that. I recognize that in our modern era, with the technologies of artificial insemination and so forth, and the opportunities for adoption, there are many same-sex couples who have children, and I am not trying to degradate those family relationships at all. What I'm saying is there is no organic, biological function by which two people of the same gender can procreate. And that's the purpose of God. Now, what do you say? Well, you mean God only intends for people to have children? So if I never have children, God doesn't love me, and people can go all off the rails on that. But wait a minute. Let me just say something to you. I am not saying if you don't have children, God doesn't love you, or that your life has no purpose, or any of that nonsense. But can you please recognize that you wouldn't be here unless a man and a woman had had sex? And that's true of everyone. And if a man and a woman don't continue to have sex... None of us will be able to be on the planet any longer. That's a fact. And if there's something rising up in you about that that is resistant, will you recognize that that's a lie? Because what I've just said is an indisputable fact. And so if it causes you to quake and shake, it shows you that you're standing on something that isn't true. And something that isn't true isn't of God and is not of God's purpose, which means it is not of life and it will not bring life to you. It can't. It cannot. If you exchange the truth about God for a lie, then you are given over to the lie and everything that the lie 
will ensnare and enslave you into. God gives them over to what they have chosen because God has chosen to give us the right to choose who we will worship and how we will live, but we do not get to choose the results. And there are penalties that come within and throughout society. So there's so much more that I should and could say here. It's very important to recognize that somebody might say, well, what if this is my propensity? What if, I, you know, what if I'm a homosexual or a bisexual or my sexual orientation doesn't align with the biblical description? Well, first of all, I want you to know the Bible doesn't describe sexual orientation at all. It doesn't conceive of sexual orientation. And shouldn't that be a bit of an alarm to you? Because the Bible doesn't leave undiscussed major topics. If sexual orientation is such a real thing, why isn't it in the scripture? You say, but it is. You just talked about it. No, what I talked about was people having sex with each other. That's not sexual orientation. That's sexual activity. What the Bible describes is sexual activity between people of the same sex is the product of a lie and will propagate something. You cannot reproduce the species, but you can reproduce the lie. And it will affect all of society, which is exactly what the enemy wants. But somebody says, well, why did God make me this way? Friend, all have sinned. This is not about some set of people who have some particular problem and the rest of us are going, those disgusting people are the reason that society is going downhill. There are Christians and other kinds of people, other religious people that do that, but those are the self-righteous ones that Paul is about to talk to and also say, wait a minute, this, the wrath of God comes against other people too. Because if I stand here and say, it's wrong for people to have sexual relations with people of the same sex, how about people of opposite sex, men and women, having sexual relations outside of marriage? That comes under the exact same word that is used here. Fornication is the traditional translation. The Greek word porneo, which is where we get our root for pornographic and pornography, has to do with any sexual activity that is outside the arrangement of God. In other words, something that is not part of the covenant relationship that God ordained. And all of us are guilty of that. All of us are guilty of that. You say, well, I've never had sex outside of marriage. Well, hey, can I just say this? No surprise here. The majority of people hearing me don't want me to talk too deeply about this, but there's a lot who can recognize they don't qualify on those terms of just behavior. But let's say you've lived the pure life, but what about the life of your mind? Because Jesus said, if you look at a woman, and you can transpose that, if you look at a man and you desire them in your heart, but that relationship would be, if you acted upon it, outside of a marriage, or would be a fornication act, then even just thinking about it is a sin. Not, not thinking about it academically, but desiring it internally. So who among us hasn't done that? I, I have. Do you, I mean, maybe that makes you uncomfortable for me to admit it, but far be it for me to stand here and say, I haven't been like that, and I know that you have too. And it starts early. I mean, I, I can think back to when I was a little kid. And that was going on in my mind. You might think, well, what a perverse guy you are. Yeah, exactly. I am. That's why I need a savior. It's not, though, the fact that we have a desire. God designed us to have a desire for intimacy. It's what we do with that desire. And I don't have enough time to go into all the detail. But for someone out there for whom this is a deeply personal conversation 
because of who you are, because of someone you love. What I want you to know is the first step is recognizing the truth of God and just saying, I know that you, I know there's things going on in me that, that don't reflect what you want. And I don't know how to deal with that. But I want to live in the light of your truth. I want to live according to your word. Then God, by his grace, will open your eyes and start to show you the ways in which he can impart to you life transformed. But if you and I, as believers, think that our job is just to critique the world and say, look at how wrong they're all getting it. Paul says, don't you know that you who have these kinds of thoughts and you who have these kinds of histories and you who also falter, you also will come under God's judgment? Do you think that God's kindness and forbearance and patience, all these riches that he has given to us, do you think that you can just squander those? In fact, what Paul says is, your model to the world. Now, again, he's not just talking to the Romans. He's talking to people of this kind. He's talking to believers everywhere. And he's saying, do you know the world doesn't look at us and say, wow, those people are so righteous. They must reflect God. The world looks at us and critiques God and critiques this, this way of living because of our unrighteousness, our stubbornness, our unrepentance. But if we will repent and rely on God, then there will be a response, there will be a resource of grace to all who believe, to Jew and Gentile, because God does not show favoritism. The love of God is available to all. All who sin apart from the law, that is people who say, I don't have anything to do with that book. Don't talk to me about the Bible. I don't believe it. You think that's sacred word? Well, that doesn't count for me. What about those people? He's speaking to those people right now. He's saying, even though you don't have the law, you're still going to die. You'll die without it. Because the law was given in order to give life. The law reflects the life of God. So if you want to ignore the life of God, you have no connection to real life. But don't think that just by hearing it and knowing it, you have life. Because it's actually obeying it that brings righteousness. Notice here how, once again, righteousness and life are the same. And so he's saying you have to obey the law. When Gentiles, in other words, when people who don't know the scriptures, non-believers, when they, by nature, do things that are required by the law. In other words, they think it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to steal, it's right to help, it's good to be humble. Why on earth does anybody think humility is good if they don't believe in God? What reason is there to be humble if there's no judge watching? People say, well, that's so offensive as though I need a judge to make me humble. Well, you're not humble even with a judge. So I don't, why would it matter? It matters because even if you don't accept the Bible, the truth of the Bible is written in your heart. And you know it. Sometimes you make excuse. Sometimes you defend yourself. And when you do that, it shows that you know that there is, in fact, something right and something wrong, something good and something bad, and it comes from God. So that even if you don't have the law, you have the revelation of God in your heart. But if you do know the law, if you do know the word, how about the fact that you and I don't fulfill it? 
Paul says, there's a day when God will judge the secret things of everybody's hearts. As my gospel declares, Paul is saying, my good news, this message of good news that I have for you, it involves this, I think it comes as bad news to a lot of people. My good news involves this bad news. There's a day coming when everything secret becomes known. When everything hidden comes into the light. When every act is measured. Every word, every deed, every thought. Does that sound good to you? Makes me afraid. Makes me ashamed. But the good news of God is this. God's grace which cannot be earned by righteousness, brings righteousness by faith. Next week, we will look more at, that, at how that happens. But for today, on this Valentine's Day, I want to ask you to come into a time of prayer with me in which we recognize that God is not singling out any group of people or any individual person in this message and saying, I want to stand against that person with hatred and violence. Therefore, no one hearing my words should construe that as anything reflective of God. These words are words of love and life, but they are also words of truth. God calls us to speak the truth in love. What God is doing is reaching out with love. And love requires truth. And truth reflects the reality that apart from God, there is no hope, there is no life. But in God, there is forgiveness of sins, there is the grace that abides, there is real righteousness and transformation. Every single one of us needs it. Doesn't matter what our background is, what our inner life or inclinations are, doesn't matter what our ethnic origin or nation of origin or tribe or tongue. Every single one of us needs the love of God in order to live. And every single one of us needs the grace of God in order to be made alive in Christ and right in the eyes of God. And every single one of us can be. The love of the Lord comes to you today. Pray with me, won't you? Just bow your head. Open your heart. And let me lead you. I want to speak a prayer over you and to all that are streaming or watching this recording. Don't tune out now. Tune in. Tune in to God. Lord, we come before you as people who have been confused and misled about so many things in so many ways at so many times in the past. Maybe even as people who today we would say, I'm going the wrong way. I need a correction. Maybe we would be people who would say to you today, I'm afraid to go your way. I don't understand what you're asking me to do and I don't understand how I can possibly do it. Maybe we come before you today as people who say, I've tried so many times and I've tried so hard and I just don't think that I can, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can cut this life. I don't think that I can make it, Lord. I want to follow you, but I don't seem to be able to. 
whatever our particular position is. Maybe we come to you today recognizing how miraculously you've moved in our past and transformed our life and ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our desires, how you have reformed and renewed and released us. And we come to you with great joy, but also, Lord, with fresh need for how we move forward for tomorrow and the challenges that we face in it. Whatever our particular position, I pray, Lord, that you would reach down to us right now with your hand of love, with your heart of grace, with your mind of truth, with your everlasting light. Penetrate the darkness that we live in. Penetrate the flesh that we die in. Penetrate our soul, our spirit, with your word of life, with your promise of hope, with your offer of grace, with the assurance of forgiveness, with your blood, Lord Jesus, with your blood. Cleanse us by your blood, that blood that flowed from your body on the cross, evidence of your sacrifice, seed of your spirit. Let it be sown into us. Let it flow over us. Fill us, Lord, each one with your Holy Spirit to intercede within us, to liberate us, and to redeem us, to unite us to you and fill us with your truth and fill us with your righteousness. Fill us with your grace, 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 God, to declare the good news of life to a world in need around us and to stand before your throne, unafraid, yet reverent, unashamed, yet repentant, alive, so that even though we know that out ahead of us lies a day in which this life here ends, we know that inside of us, the eternal everlasting life has already begun and will never end. A life not only with you, but of you, in you. If that's your prayer, just say, Lord Jesus Christ. Repeat that, Lord Jesus Christ, I belong to you. Make me yours from faith, by faith, to faith. Amen.